welcome. We are glad to have you with us at Crosswinds this morning. Uh, just a few uh, announcements, really the same announcements as last week. We just have a few things coming up, which is uh, May 21st, we have a, a huddle meeting. That'll be 6 p.m. here. Um, uh, dinner will be provided. That'll be an all-congregation uh, meeting. And then the following week is, is the holiday weekend. And we're going to do that as a, as a combined service, a little different than typically when we do combined services. Those services are, are larger uh, and that sort of thing. But in, in this case, it's just uh, because of the holiday weekend, it's best for us to meet together. But we're going to meet at uh, Godfrey Lee for that. And then afterwards, we're just going to have a, have a picnic. Uh, someone was asking because we also do the middle of the summer picnic where we do ribs or we, we smoke something. This is, this is more of a low-key uh, just for... Um, just kind of a get together, and it's more of a potluck type uh, type picnic. So that is the twenty eighth, um, and I feel like that is it. In my head, I was saying there was something else that I was supposed to supposed to announce, but I I don't remember it. So so we're gonna we're gonna stand on on those. So if you want to stand with me and join me, we're gonna pray the Lord's prayer together, and then uh, I'll pray to begin our service. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Jesus, bless this time. Uh, bless uh, as we, we uh, dig into the book of Philippians. Uh, may you uh, be clearly revealed through the pages of Scripture. You're a great God in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We begin uh, what amounts to a 10-week series in the book of, uh, of Philippians, or 10 messages in in. Philippians, there might be points where we would we would jump out and, and do something else on a on a specific Sunday, but there's ten messages in in Philippians, and so we begin that this morning. Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul. I will just read to you our passage, and then we will dive in. But Philippians, uh, verse chapter one, verse one says this: Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the, in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Uh, so I don't know if you did uh, sports or theater or any sort of performance-based um, 
um, activity, or maybe, maybe you, you still do. But one of the things that is sort of universal before, uh, before those, before those uh, events, whether it be sports or theater, in, in those diverse things, is kind of the, the, the pre-game or pre-performance pep talk, right? This sort of get together, uh, get your brain right, get a pep talk sort of thing. And so uh, in my life, I've heard both amazing pre-game prep talks and, and horrific pre-game uh, uh, pep talks. One of the most amazing I've ever heard is we were about to, uh, our football team was about to play Kelloggsville. It was uh, what is for us the biggest game of the uh, of the season. If you're not into sports, I don't know how to contextualize Godwin and Kelloggsville for you. Uh, if you are into into sports, this is this is uh, Michigan versus Ohio State. This is Alabama versus Auburn. Uh, if you're not, it's one team that really dislikes each other versus another team that really dislikes each other. But if you grew up here in in Godwin Heights, this is the biggest game of, of the year. Uh, Kelloggsville is is just down the road. Uh, it, it's close by. Um, we have. Uh, contact with each other. People call this the Battle of uh, the Battle of South Division. And I remember that one time we brought in actually one of my friends who's a who's a teacher uh, at Godwin Heights, but was also a Godwin Heights uh, graduate. Uh, and he had played football not only at Godwin, but he played at, at Ferris State. He was very uh, effective as, as a football player, good friend of ours. But they brought him in to do the pregame pep talk. And I've seen a lot of them. Uh, I played for Godwin Heights. I coached for 17 years there. I'd seen a lot of pregame uh, pep talks, uh, but they brought in uh, my buddy Chris, and Chris talked to them pregame. I have to tell you, I don't remember a word he said. In fact, I'm not even sure that he said a word in the whole thing. I just remember that he came in and acted like a crazy man and screamed and flailed his arms a lot and got really crazy. He was, go beat Kelloggsville. And everybody was like so pumped up. Everyone's like, yes, let's go beat Kelloggsville. And you march out as a as, as little soldiers to, to go beat Kelloggsville. And it was powerful because it got the people, uh, the people pumped up. And the purpose of the, the pregame is to put you in the right frame of mind for, for the activity that you're about to take place. In. And in, in a football uh, context, you want to be pumped up as you, as you walk out there. And I remember that, that Chris's pregame uh, did, did that. Uh, I also coached, though, for years with, a, with another guy who was the worst at pregame prep talks. His, his pregame pep talks on the, on, the, on the junior varsity squad used to always go like this. Well, probably not going to win. Probably not going to be able to get him this time. But hey, let's go out there and uh, do the best that we can possibly do, and uh, maybe some good things will happen. Not a win, but some, some, good, some good things. Worst pep talk ever. Like, I was not playing. I was just coaching, but I'm going, maybe you don't want to tell people before every game that we play that we have no chance to win those games. Maybe you want to switch that up. But that was his, his pregame, which I don't recommend. And I, I, I tell you this to say that I think this, this passage that we deal with this morning functions like the Apostle Paul's pregame. He's giving a pregame to, to what is about to happen in the rest of the book of, of Philippians. And what he's doing is he's reminding the church at, uh, at Philippi to get their minds right, to get their thought process right, and to prepare for what com comes after. Because what often happens in, in a pregame uh, is that uh, 
is that you're reminding the team of who they are. You're reminding them of their, their preparation. You're reminding them of their, their identity. It was one of the problems with the bad pep talk is that he was reminding us routinely that year of our identity as a bad team. And no one wants to be reminded of, of that. And that is not the case with Paul here. But he's going to remind the church at Philippi who they are. And he's going to remind them what it takes to, to accomplish things. And so I want to contextualize it like that and just jump in to the various things that happen in the, in the passage, the various things that, that Paul says to them in, in the passage, and then we will, we will apply it afterwards. I give you that sort of introduction because as you read through this and you look for, uh, for one specific thing to do it or look for one point without sort of that overarching idea of what Paul's trying to accomplish, it can be a little difficult to make one one point of this. But Paul says to them, and we're going to start at verse 3. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. He starts off by saying, hey, church at Philippi, when I remember you, every time I think of you, I give thanks for you. He says, I'm always praying, verse 4, always praying with a joy for all of you in my every prayer. This was not then the team that Paul said to, hey, guys, uh, you're not going to win. Hey, you're not the best. I'll be honest with you, in my, in my coaching career, which did span a lot of time, there have been teams that I've been around that, that were not, um, not our favorite team, and I've been around teams that we absolutely loved. Uh, we had the interesting thing that we had at two different points taken over the program, and so we had coached for years, built something, and then uh, something happened in the, in the life of the, of, of the head coach, and he needed to step away, and so we did not coach. And so then we came back to coaching after, uh, after four years, and when we came back to coaching, it was very difficult because the class that we got in that first year coaching, while they, while uh, on a personal level they could be enjoyable at times, they really didn't know how to be coached. They really didn't know how to listen to a coach. They really didn't know how to be a part of a team. And so one of the things we would say regularly is, this team, this team and this program is going to improve when those seniors graduate. When those guys leave, we're going to have a better, a better program. And I point that out simply to say that there's, there's times when you're dealing with, with, uh, with groups of, uh, of people, uh, as Paul is, uh, where you go, oh, man, that's a difficult crew. But this Philippian crew does not seem to be as difficult as a, as a crew for, for Paul. In fact, his, the way he's going to refer to them, the way he's going to talk about them, the affection that he's going to show them is going to have an uncommon sort of kindness, an uncommon sort of, uh, sort of affection, an uncommon sort of love. That's why he says, I give thanks to my God every remembrance of you. And I pray with joy for all of you in my every prayer. And then he says, why? Because, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He views them as teammates, and he wants to remind them, who are you guys? You are guys that I'm thankful for. Who are you? You're people that I, give, that I, that I pray for with joy in my heart for every prayer. Why? Because you're partners in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says in verse 6, he says, I'm sure of this. That he who started a good work in you will carry it until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's going to give them an encouragement. Not only do I love you, not only do I have affection for you, not only have we, have we worked together, not only has there been a partnership, but realize this. I'm sure of this. He, meaning God, who started a good work in you, will carry it until the... Uh, uh, 
uh, carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So this is, this is his, his encouragement because the Philippians, I'm sure, like any other people in the, in the history of the world, had up days and down days in their walk with Jesus. Right? They had days that, 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 that felt like they were going well and days where they felt like everything was horrible. And he wants to remind them that even on those days when they think everything's going terrible, on those days when they think everything's going bad, on those, those days where they think they're not going to make it, so he who, who began a good work in you will carry it on. In, uh, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to con- completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so he's affirming, hey, church at, at Philippi, God is going to finish what he started. He's not finished with you yet. You may not get to be where you want to be yet. You may not be, be at the level that, that you should be yet, but you're not at the level that you will be yet. And it is God who is going to carry this out. So he reminds them, them uh, of, of this reality, that the God of the universe is at work in them. And if you can take one promise uh, if you away from this is that if, if it is God who is doing it, then God will finish it. And so he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is going to make them in to who they're supposed to be. He's going to make them into what they're supposed to be. He's going to continue to work on them. Uh, then he says in verse 7, And indeed it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and my defense and my confirmation of the gospel. And so, so I imagine, I imagine that, that someone might have come to Paul and said, Paul, man, you're getting a little mushy in this introduction. Why are you getting so mushy? Why are you getting so emotional? Paul responds, it's right for me to talk this way. It's right for me to talk this way and to think about this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here's a, here's a story that you can't tell Dave Block I told you, okay? But... So, uh, so Dave uh, has been interacting with, with these passages and other passages, and we've been sort of teasing him because he's been so, like, love-oriented lately. Like, everything is like, he said to me, he, uh, he, he said he went to uh, watch his, um, watch uh, Melvin, watch his, his, uh, his youngest son practice for, for the school, uh, the school, uh, performance the school play he was going to be in and he went and watched it and he saw all of these these children from all of these different nations uh singing uh together and they were singing songs about america and they were singing these patriotic songs and it just hit him that here were all these children from these different places singing these and it was like it hit him that they were all americans and it was so beautiful to him he said that he he did not cry but he might have felt his eye twitch or his eye might have leaked slightly and of course because he works with uh people like aaron Turner and and I, we did not go, well, that is just the sweetest story we've ever heard. That's so sweet. We said, dude, uh, that's interesting because it was not the first time. There was a lot. Of, uh, he was famous the week before the week before he was getting teased because he, he had sent out a tweet that said something like, the world may run on Duncan or, or something about America may run on Duncan, but the world runs on God's love. And so we've been gently teasing him for these sorts of things. And then I said to him, when he was telling me this story and about the love and how emotional it was, when I said to him, I said, Dave, um, I think your wife needs to come home. Amanda had been away uh, 
at a conference for a few days, and he was he's like, I know, he needs to come home, but everything for him currently is, is about love, and, uh, and because, um, because Aaron Turner and I are not the nicest, we've been teasing him about that, but I will say this, Paul appears to be on the same, way, same wavelength as, as Dave on the same thing, and I wonder if people said to him, Paul, why are you being so emotional Man, Paul, why, why are you being like that? What's up with that? And Paul says, no. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Here's the thing. We just spent, uh, spent three weeks going over 1 Corinthians the, uh, chapter 13, the, the passage on love, sort of love being the currency and the central uh, uh, focus of, of, of the kingdom. Here, Paul is applying that and he's applying it perfectly. He loves them and he loves them with a deep Christian affection. You're seeing it carried out and it is right for him to think about them in this way. Uh, he has them in his heart. He has a deep affection. Uh, he says they're partners with him in grace, both in his imprisonment. Remember, Paul uh, has been locked up. Paul preaches the gospel. The empire doesn't like when the gospel is preached. Paul gets locked up. Paul's in lockdown. And they have been with him in, in, that, in his imprisonment. They've also been with him in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're partners. They work together. They are truly teammates. The Philippian church is not like, um, like some of the churches. I don't know if you remember back when we went through the book of, of, of Revelation, but continually in the book of Revelation, when churches were getting called out, when churches were getting essentially told that they weren't actually churches because they were not involved in the work of Jesus, every time the word work of Jesus, the work of Jesus was this missional, this missional speaking forth, this missional telling forth, this missional spreading of the good news about Jesus. And so the Philippian church is not like those churches. It is, it is a partner. It shares Jesus. It wants others to know. It speaks the good news and glory of who Jesus is. And so Paul, because he's been teammates with them, because they've worked together, Paul is overwhelmed with that. I don't know if you... Um, uh, if you've had the experience of going to Christian camp or any other sort of camp, but, but, but it's a good example of what happens in the, in the incubator of close space, right? So what happens if, if you did go to a Christian camp or any other sort of sleepaway camp, you might have in that week form some of the closest and deepest relationships of your young life, right? Now, hopefully, we have deeper relationships beyond camp as adults. But as a, as a teenager and younger, you go away to camp, you spend every day sleeping next to every moment, eating with, spending time with people. And when you spend every moment with them, it causes a deepening of, of the relationship. That, and, and so deep that, that it is... It is uh, that, that we can make um, common jokes for anyone who's ever gone to, to Christian camp. If, if I tease about singing, and friends are friends forever, most people have been to Christian camp know what that's about. It's the end of the week, and you have to separate from the person that you went to camp with. And um, uh, if you're uh, typically, uh, if you're a young lady, you might be in tears at the, at the end of the week because you had to leave your closest friends ever. You're like, I'm never going to see you again. And we're so close and you just mean so much to me. It's so special, right? There's a deepening of relationship when you're in proximity, right? Paul has that deepening of, of relationship because he's worked together with the Philippian church. But it's deeper than just um, what happens at camp is the natural result of proximity and community. You're together, 
And because you're together all, all the time, you get closer. But Paul has something even deeper. There's proximity and closeness because they're together, but they've also worked together on the same thing. This is sometimes called by guys like Alan Hirsch and others, communitas. And communitas is when you have deep community, those things, you're in proximity, you're together, and you have a common purpose. Uh, to illustrate this, there's a, there's a tribe... Um, on the continent of, of Africa, where the boys grow up uh, in, in the tribe on the continent of Africa, they grow up exclusively in, um, in, in one side of the camp with their mothers. Living in the other side of, of the camp is, is the fathers, and the boys grow up with their mothers until they hit the age of about 12, 13, right around, right around puberty. When, when that happens, what ha the, the, the men of the tribe rush in and they kidnap the boys. They take the boys and they take them out into, into the bush, out into the jungle, and they set them free. And they leave them there. And the reason that, that they do this is not for because they intend to abandon them, but many sociological studies uh, of this event has happened. They do it because at first the boys, when they're dropped out into the middle of, of the bush, into the middle of the jungle, initially they try and do stuff on their own. Initially they try and go their own direction. But what invariably happens when they're faced to the task, and in this case the task is survival, when they're faced with the task of survival, what happens is that the boys, instead of going opposite directions, come together and they form, start to form relationships, but their relationship is not like Christian camp relationship, which frankly is the easiest relationship in the world. Your mom and your dad sent you away someplace fun where you get to do crafts and go swimming every day, right? That's our culture. In African culture at the same age, they drop them off in the middle of the jungle. Slightly different, but what happens is they come together, and when they, when, when they come together, they come together for a purpose. What's the purpose? It's survival. And they start to work together, and they start to do things like, like gather their, their own food. They start to do things like uh, to set up their own shelters. They start to do things like keep watch out for protection because there are things in, 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 uh, on this continent like, like lions, and they start to protect each other, and they start to work together. At the end of this period, at the end of two weeks, the men come back and the boys who they dropped off as individuals are one collective unit. They work together, they think together, and they defend each other for, because they have been forced to do so. This is called communitas. It's community when there's a purpose added. The purpose in the case of these young, these young boys was to survive. But the, law, the bigger purpose on, on the part of the fathers is the fathers come back, they get the boys, and they bring the boys home to the village of the, of the men because they have passed over from being just boys who go their individual ways to men who work, work together. And the purpose for... for uh, the, the larger purpose was to teach the boys what it means to be a member of their, their tribe, what it means to support one another, what it means to care for one another. This is called communitas. It's where you have deep community, but that community is rooted in a purpose. You had to accomplish something together. You've probably had this experience at some point in your life as well. Uh, um, where you have come together with a group of people where you might have been different people, you might have been disparate people, you might not have been the best of friends at the beginning, but you worked together over a period of time in close relationship to accomplish one task and one purpose, and when you did that, it cemented a friendship and a relationship that happened for life. It caused affection to grow. It's communitas, when there's a purpose. That's what Paul is talking about here. So when Paul says, 
Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. When he says that, he is talking about the concept of communitas. He has been in close relationship with the Philippians church, but he has also been in close relationship with the common purpose, the the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. And because they've worked together on that, because they've spent time together on that, that is cemented in them a relationship that is deeper than than mere acquaintance-type friendship. Deeper even than, than sixth grade camp relationship. Uh, verse 6 says, For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ, and pray, that, uh, pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. I want to hit this, For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I don't know if we use that terminology uh, a lot, but I know that we do not use it enough. And what I want you to catch here is what Paul says to them is that he loves them with the same kind of affection which Jesus loves them with, right? Now, he doesn't say, I love you like Jesus loves you because he, he adds this, this extra word. He says, I love you uh, uh, um, with the affection of Christ Jesus. I want to talk about affection for a minute because I think it's, it's different than, than how we think, because I think all of us realize, and the Philippian church would have realized as Christ followers, that God loves us, right? God loves you. I typically, or we typically don't get a lot of, a lot of people go, no, God doesn't love me. Everyone kind of goes, yes, God loves us. He has to, right? Because there's an expectation that he's God, and God has to love you, so he loves you because he has to. And so we, we get ourselves trapped in this sort of thinking where God is a God who loves out of obligation. It's God's obligation to love for us. Uh, we're the worst. We're basically unlikable. We're terrible. But good news, God, because he's God and good, puts up with stinky people like us, and he loves us. That's typically... In our down moments, how we think about God's love towards us. But this says with affection. Now, affection is different than obligation love, is it not? Isn't affection different than than loving from obligation, right? I might be obligated to love my children uh, someday. And I do. I love them every day. But there's obligation days. And you say, well, that's not nice. And I say, you must not be a parent, right? But there's obligation days where you're like, why did he just do that? Why did she just do that? What is the thinking behind that? And so some days you have obligation love for for your children. But man, there's different moments when you're with your child and it's just like affection love and it's completely different. So this morning, uh, Noah came in. It was Mother's Day, but for some reason he decided that I would be the target. Uh, and he, he climbed on top of me, and he was, he was using me essentially like, like a jungle gym, and he was like laying right here on, on top of me, and uh, he is a stocky child. Uh, we're going to put that child in the NFL if we keep worrying. I mean, he's stocky, but he, he was on top of me, and, and I, was, I was giggling, and he was giggling, and I was trying to get him, get him off and, and push him, but honestly, he's so strong that sometimes I can't get him off, and I don't know if... Um, if you're going to relate to this, like, but that's an affection moment, right? The moment when your child is there and they just have to be near you and they're giggling and you're giggling, it's an affection moment. And I have those with, with all of my children. We do things and we have moments and we have connections, right? From the oldest to the youngest, there are words and phrases and stuff that Haley and I will say regularly that are affection phrases. It's because I like her. 
right? And, and that like is based in love. It's not obligation love, like you're my daughter, I must love you, tis the law. It's no, you're my daughter and I love you because I do and I have great affection towards you. And that's funny and I enjoy that and, and, I, and I laugh. And with all of my children, I, I have that. I've had moments where affection is, is seen. And so I don't know if all of us always understand this reality that, that's being Paul saying to the church at Philippi, but he's saying, God, I love you the way Jesus does. And Jesus loves you with affection. One of my favorite stories is the story of a, of a, of a singer slash comedian named Mark Lowry. If you don't know Mark Lowry um, from comedy, you know the song, Mary, Did You Know? And Mark Lowry wrote that song, right? Mark Lowry is extremely, 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 extremely ADHD. And when I say extremely, I mean extremely, like insanely ADHD. So bad that they were having constant fights at the, at the school. They put him in one of, the, one of the classes and the teacher in that class could not control him and became so angry at him that she took her, her fingernails and, and she dug them into his arm and said, you will behave. And he went home and he had those fingernail marks on his arm. And his mother, bless her, went back up to the school and said, you will get my child out of that classroom. So they put her, him into, an, into another classroom with another teacher. And the interesting thing about this teacher is this teacher had a helper. And in the moments where Mark felt like, he, when it felt like Mark was getting too wild, in the moments where it felt like Mark was getting too out of control, what would happen is that this teacher would say to, the other, to, to her helper, you be in charge of the classroom. And she'd take Mark by the hand and she'd take him on walks around the school. And he said this, he said, not only did I feel it, that she loved me, but she told me something. And he said, the thing she told me was this. She said, Mark, do you know that Jesus likes you? And he said, it was unbelievable to hear it first. And he said, because he'd known his whole life. He'd grown up, he teases, he does all kinds of jokes about growing up in a, in a Baptist home, right? He's in the South, he grew up in a Baptist. He'd grown up knowing from the time he was a baby that Jesus loved him. He has to, he's Jesus, right? But it was the first time he had ever heard with his ears this, that Jesus liked him. And when he heard that Jesus liked him, it revolutionized him, and it revolutionized who he was. And I think that that is what Paul is getting at here with the church at Philippi. It's not just they're loved with the obligation love of a God who has to, but they're liked with the affectionate love of a God who wants to of a God who made them, of a God who created them, of a God who cared for them. Make no mistake, God is under no obligation to save you. God is under no obligation to rescue you. God was under no obligation to die on the cross for you, and he did, and he calls you, and he cares for you, and he loves you, and I would suggest that he likes you. And I think that that's what the church at Philippi needed to hear. God likes them. Jesus likes them. It's not obligation. For God is my witness how deeply I miss you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's an affectionate love. And we don't spend enough time in our head thinking about what, what it's like to have the, those affectionate moments. What would have it been like for the church at Philippi to understand that they're loved affectionately by Jesus? Affectionately enough that, that, if, that, if, that if Jesus was, 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 uh, was sleeping in or, or having a conversation, uh, one moment, that, that we could go jump on him and use his body for a jungle gym. Now that is odd when you think of it in, in adult terms. But it is appropriate when you think of it like this. That is how children show affection. That is how children... Would Christ show pleasure 
in your, have pleasure in your affection towards him? Would Christ giggle with you? Would Christ share with you a shared joke? Would Christ enjoy you? My, my argument here is yes. Jesus doesn't love you simply with an with a, with a obligation love. But he has an affection love, or the church at, at Philippi in this case. Verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Here's, here's what I think Paul... Sorry. Here's what I think Paul's getting at. Paul's saying to him, listen, remember who you are. This is your identity. This is, your, this is who you are. You are loved. You are cared for. You are partners. You have communitas. He's reminding them of all of these things because they are the, the people of, of God. And he's viewing them like Jesus views them. Paul reminds them of this because he wants them to do two things. And I think this is where our, where our application co comes in, right? Paul reminds them of that, of that affection kind of love. Paul reminds them of, 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 of their partnership. Paul reminds them, and he prays for them with joy. Paul reminds them that they were there for him and helped him share the gospel. Paul reminds them that he deeply misses them. He reminds them of all of these things. And so I think there's two things going on here. Number one, Paul's reminding them of who they are by reminding them how he loves them because he's reminding them that it's the very way in which Jesus loves them. Paul is saying, I love you like Jesus loves you. So point number one is this. If we wanted to apply this, what would you do with this passage? I'm going to suggest two things. If Paul can, through Jesus, love others like Jesus loved them, what would it look like if we determined that we would love others like Paul did, like Jesus does? What if we were giving thanks for the people in our congregation? Thanks for the people in our family. Thanks for the people in our life. What if we were always praying with joy? What if we loved them with an affection that was like Jesus's? What if we worked together in such deep ways that it formed a communitas, a, a, an unbreakable bond of a shared goal that made us love and care for each other more? Paul is loving the church at Philippi like Jesus loves them. And if Paul was loving them like Jesus loves them, and it's in the Bible, I think the example there is, are you loving people in the congregation? Are you loving other people in your life? And this is specific to the congregation because of the shared the shared. Um, the shared teamwork in the gospel. Are you loving others in the congregation like Jesus loves them? Are you loving them like Paul loved them and Paul was loving them like Jesus loved them? What does it mean to truly love each other like that? This is an application then or a carried out application of what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But if Paul loves like this and this is how Jesus loves, let me ask you, how are you loving? What kind of affection are you showing what kind of care are you showing? Do you have joy? And, and do you have, have the affection? That's the affection of Christ Jesus. So that's number one. How we, and then here's, here's number two. I think that the greatest problem that we have in our culture, the, in, and I mean culture as a whole and culture of the church, the greatest problem we face today is that people don't know who they are. They have broken identities, right? 
We're talking all the time, even in, in the bigger culture. Well, I identify as this. There's a, there's a young woman named Rachel Dolezal. She's Caucasian. Uh, uh, and she's gotten in huge trouble because she says even though she's Caucasian, she identifies as African-American. And she had worked her way up through, um, through a lot of different ways to being the head of the, the local chapter, a very large chapter of the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored, uh, colored People. And so, so uh, this Caucasian woman, kind of ironically, had worked her way up and stolen the job uh, from a person of color in an organization for people of color because she said, I identify as an African-American. She's two white parents, Right? It's a broken identity issue, and I, I bring that one up because it's the least controversial, I think, of, of all these identity issues in our, our culture, but identity is broken. But it's not just broken in the world as a whole. I think it's broken in the church, too. In other words, we are all sort of seeking to figure out who we are and what we are and what we're like. And so the biggest problem I face in my spiritual life, and I suspect the biggest problem you face in your spiritual life is going, who am I? And, and what am I? And all of this. And so, so I think identity is the biggest issue. And I want to say this about your identity. Is Paul identifies for the Philippian church exactly who they are? And my suspicion or my, 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 my thesis or what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that Paul would identify all of you in the same way. That Paul would identify children of Jesus who are about the work of Jesus in the same way. And when Paul says that he, he, uh, he loves them with the affection of Christ Jesus... And he applies that to the Philippian church. I think it's appropriate to understand that Jesus would extend that same affection to you. And so who are you then? What is your identity? Your identity is caught up in this. You are a person who is deeply loved and also liked by the Lord Jesus Christ. You are cared for. You are, you are, you are who he wants you to be in, 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 in the general sense. Yes, you are broken and marred by sin. But when you are in him, your identity is becoming like him. So that the sin that, 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 that beleaguers you, the sin that attacks you, the stuff that you don't want to do, that you do do, is stuff that is outside of your identity. That is not who you are. It is just junk that somehow has attached itself to you. But who you are is deeply loved by Jesus. And in loving you and caring for you, I think it's also true that we can say, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out until com to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. Who are you? You are someone who is deeply loved by Jesus Christ. What does that mean? As a person who Jesus deeply loves and likes, he is going to make you like him. He's going to get rid of all that junk, all that trash, all that terrible stuff that surrounds all the sinful stuff. He's going to get rid of that so that you can be who you were made to be, a child of the living God. Your identity is as one who is loved and liked by Jesus. The unfortunate thing in our broken times is that that is our identity, but we continue to live in to sin and, and other things that are not our identity because we have trouble grasping this one. And so my suggestion is this, is that when you realize who you are and who you were made to be, and when you realize that Jesus loves you, not only does he love you, that he likes you, I would hope then that it gives you strength to live out that identity in reality so that you don't have to go chasing after all the fake identities that most of us spend our lives. You do not have to be a spiritual Rachel Dolezal, right? Trying to find something to be, trying to find something else to be. When I encounter people oftentimes who have grave sin in their life, when I encounter people who have done things with their bodies that they should not have, 
right? When I encounter people who've done things in their relationships that they should not have, when I encounter in my own life just about any sin that I commit, I'm convinced that is a basic broken identity problem. I sin because I'm seeking to find out who I am or establish that I am somebody. And yet the truth of the scripture is this. I am somebody I am one who is deeply loved and liked by Jesus. And if that is my identity, then that can be a game changer for me. That can change everything. I no longer have to seek my identity in in relationships. I no longer have to seek my identity in popularity. I no longer have to seek my identity in how good people think I am at being a pastor, how good people think I am at being a coach, how good people think I am at being a school board member. I don't have to seek my identity in those things. None of those are me. Those are stuff that I do, but who I am is a man who is deeply loved and liked by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you discover who you are, that's the moment where you go, I don't have to live in sin anymore. And so if I could convince you of one thing and convince me of one thing, it would be this, is that no matter what what sin tells you, no matter what identity chasing tells you, no matter what your head tells you, there will be no greater joy for you than being who you were made to be. And who you were made to be is loved and liked by Jesus Christ. If you are his, that is your identity. And you won't find joy in sin. Because I see people go, well, I know that I should do that, but I really want to do this. And so I sometimes see people choose sin as if they're, that's going to help. As if, and so they chase all these things. No, you will never be satisfied until you are satisfied in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, if you accept this idea that he has made you and he's made you for a purpose and he's loved you and liked you for a purpose, you will never find pleasure. You will never find satisfaction. You will never find happiness and joy that is enduring or that lasts beyond the moment in anything other than the love and affection of Jesus. And if Jesus Christ loves you, when you realize that and he likes you, you discover that it's enough. You discover it's enough. And we don't want to believe that. We're like, no, I need this. No, you, you need the love and affection of Jesus. No, I need that. No, you need the love and affection of Jesus. No, I need, I need that man to love me. No, you need Jesus. I need that girl to love me. No, you need Jesus. I need this to happen, this relationship to happen this way, or this promotion to happen this way, or this amount of money to happen this way, or this amount of status to happen this way. No, you need Jesus. The love and affection of Jesus is the center point of your identity. It's who you are. It's who you were made to be, and it's the only place you will ever discover joy, peace, happiness, and pleasure that is lasting and enduring. That's who Paul said that the church at Philippi was. And if the church at Philippi is loved and liked by Jesus, I think it is appropriate to, to, by extension, say, so are we, and so are you. But my question for you is this. Who are you going to be? Are you going to live into your real identity as one who's loved and liked by Jesus? Or are you going to be a spiritual Rachel Dolezal identifying as a sinner or something else? It's not who you're made to be. May we, going forward, we love one another with the affection of Jesus. And may we, going forward, come to realize that we are loved and liked with the affection of Jesus. It is who we are. Pray with me.